Okay, good evening. Welcome. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Omajushri, please accomplish this. Okay, good evening. So now we continue going through our um, progression through the various phenomena of our objective world and uh, seeing how peoples of the, uh, about the time of the common era, the turn of the common era, came to grips with describing these. And in doing that, uh, we have uh, this um, large way of classifying, uh, let's see, actually we have this way of classifying phenomena as objects, objective phenomena, subjects, and then how they connect. And objects are classified in terms of the way they're taken as objects, which we have yet to get to, in terms of their entity. In terms of their entity, phenomena are either classified as things or non-things. Things are conditioned phenomena. Non-things are non-conditioned phenomena. And this Tonight we have non-conditioned phenomena we'll go through. And then um, things are classified in terms of their entity and their function. And we'll go through function, some of the functions tonight, causes and conditions. And in terms of entity, we have these three categories, matter, consciousness, and non-associated formations. And tonight we go through non-associated formations. So tonight we do three things, non-associated formations, functions, and non-things. So let's do a little uh, um, relationship analysis. Here we have our 12 ayatanas and our datus, sense organs, organ of sight, organ of hearing, organ of smell, taste, touch, and mental activity. What's the relationship between the organ and of sight and the eye? Anyone? The organ of sight is in the eye? 
the organ of sight is in the eye. So that's a, that's a, oh my God, that's really cool. Actually, I didn't think of it that way. It's physically located in the eye, but but uh, so from one point of view, the eye in, is inclusive of the organ of sight. That's cool. From another point of view, we say that uh, all the uh, phenomena that exist that are that make up the group of uh, phenomena called organ of sight. What's the relationship between them and eyeballs? Are there any eyeballs that are also organ of sights, organs of sight? The organ of sight is in the eyeball. Well, maybe that's not a good example. Well, and when we talk about organ of sight, are we talking about those subtle ones, not the scientific view of it? That's correct. We're talking about the subtle uh, sight faculty. This should really say the, the sight faculty. Thank you for that. We can do a new version. Yeah, but I was, but I uh, just to cut to the chase. What I want to get to is uh, either last week or the week before somebody touched upon thought. And thought is one of the more difficult things to think about. And uh, not that we're going to, I don't really want to go through it fully tonight, but just think about what is the uh, faculty of mental activity called in the Buddhist tradition? Anyone? Fine. The mind, yeah. What's the relationship between the mind and the brain? Unclear. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite like the eye and the eye, eyeball and the eye sense faculty where you can say, well, theoretically, the faculty is located in the physical eye ball. We don't really know where the mind is located. And why is that? It's not a thing. It's not a thing. Does anyone agree with uh, Cynthia that the eye, that the mind is not a thing? It's, it's not a tangible, spatially located thing. Is there a, a, a larger term that you can use to describe what it's not? It's not matter. It doesn't matter, yeah. <laughs> mind does not matter, right? So we have... Uh, mind. Matter, consciousness, and non-associated formations. And so the mind is consciousness, awareness, and matter is uh, made up of form of all sorts of types. And so the mind is not form. So the relationship between the mind and the brain is... Two completely separate. Two completely separate phenomena two completely separate things, right? And um, the activity of the mind, or, or sorry, the object of the mind, like the object of sight is colors and shapes. What is the object, the uh, object of mental activity called? 
other terms for it. Thoughts? Thoughts, yeah. So, so um, just like the organ of sight has its object, which is colors and shapes, and the organ of hearing's objects or sounds, the object of the organ of mental activity known as the mind are called thoughts. Are there other types of mental objects? I mean, you could say emotions, if you want to classify them as different than thoughts. Yeah, thoughts are, are very elusive. Uh, do we see, um, we don't really see thoughts in the, in the chart of phenomena, do we? So here's the 75 dharmas. Another way of looking at things. And here we have conditioned dharmas. Here the word element is uh, used to represent the Sanskrit word dharma. Then we have uncreated dharmas. And um, under conditioned or, or created dharmas, we have matter, mind. And um, this, this uh, version breaks out mental factors from mind. Where are mental factors in um, the in this scheme? Would that be the mentation, also? So would would the mental factors be objects of mind? Let's take a look. Um, the mental factors. Uh, let's say feeling. Is that an object of mind? I think so. Is mindfulness an object of mind? Huh. It's an activity of mind. It's an activity of mind, right. Is uh, sloth an object of mind? It, is, it could be. Um, is anger an object of mind? Could be. Could be. So interestingly, uh, the afflictions could be objects of mind. There's uh, root afflictions, minor afflictions, and then there's virtuous forces. There's kushala and akushala mental factors. A kushala. Kushala means positive mental factors. And a kushala, putting a, an A before kushala, makes it the opposite of negative factors, which, in, which include the root afflictions and the minor afflictions, as well as the universally evil factors. And then there's neutral ones, indeterminate functions drowsiness, analysis. So some of them seem like they could be objects of mental mental uh, function. So we have yet to come to mental factors and how those are described. Um, but that's something to think about in terms of this scheme.
So when we, when we have the organ of sight and its object is color and shapes, and together they create visual consciousness. Can visual consciousness arise at the same time as anger? Along with anger. I think I yeah. think so. Yeah. So, um, the visual con the visual uh, consciousness would be seen a color and a shape, and the mental uh, consciousness would be experiencing anger. Or can I amend my answer? Sure. Well, I think I remember the consciousness has only happened one shot, one at a time. So there would be the visual consciousness and then a mental consciousness would grab hold of that visual consciousness. And that might have anger in its retinue as a factor. Since you, I think we were taught that you can't have two consciousnesses at once. So that's my amendment. Okay, so this is a sticky widget to think about is uh, the, this notion that consciousness can only have one object at a time. And so that forces the issue of is anger an object in this case, or, or let's use the, uh, the mental, negative mental factor of desire or lust. You're looking at something, uh, a chocolate bar, after which you're lusting. <laughs> and um, so what is the object of that uh, consciousness of the uh, consciousness that's happening in that visual moment? In the, chocolate bar. the visual moment is brown, rectangular, or whatever color the wrapper might be, or whatever. Right. So it's, uh, it's the shape and color of the supposed chocolate bar. Clearly, some of the mental factors can accompany the visual and perceptual consciousnesses because they're omnipresent. So maybe anger and these other ones can accompany. Right. So, uh, yeah, so we have this interesting uh, situation where some of these mental factors can uh, be objects of consciousness. But the main way that they appear is they are uh, they they arise in concomitance with a primary mind, and so primary minds are these six, and along with primary mind, you can have secondary mental activity, which are the mental factors. Any of these mental factors, and as Eric was saying, since there's a category called um, <clears throat> omnipresent or in the earlier system of 75 dharmas they're called general or uh, faculties or mahabhumika great faculties the implication being that they arise in any moment of consciousness regardless of whether it's eye consciousness ear consciousness or mental consciousness and it's not really uh accepted that these can necessary that these can be objects of consciousness as well they're more like functions of consciousness they're functions of consciousness exactly right whereas the 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 uh positive and negative f factors 
it's it seems like those can be objects of consciousness as well as um mental factors that accompany a primary mind and um does the the uh, mental consciousness its objects what is the object of mental consciousness we said mentation thoughts uh, mental mental activity so um generally there's two types of mental activity in the tradition one type is what we would call thought slash emotion an emotion in the, the tradition is a mental factor and it's not really considered a, a thought um, but the other type of object of mental consciousness is that it sees the objects of the other consciousnesses So th this one is particularly complicated, the mental consciousness and its objects. And uh, gradually we'll work our way into seeing how they describe these. So anyway, to come back to our scheme tonight, we're on the non-associated formations. And so the non-associated formations are this odd category of phenomena that were, was the result of trying to capture uh, uh, functions, like we just spoke about there being functionality or activity um, that is not actually matter and is not actually mind, but seems to have a reality to it and seems to meet the uh the definition of um oops where are my guys the definition of a thing That which is able to perform a function and you know so i think it's helpful to keep this definition in mind as we go through these non-associated uh, formative factors and see to what extent you, we feel that they actually fulfill this uh, definition of thing they perform a function and the two types of functions are either they are either they produce their own specific results, such as later moments of that phenomenon's own continuum, or they produce a consciousness apprehending that phenomena. They, they are observable. Uh, they, they are part of a series of a continuum. And we, we see this term type continuum. We'll have that tonight, so I'll wait on that. Um, on page we're on page 141 of the text and a lot of this is uh, a little bit um, not that uh, terribly engaging so we'll sort of skip around 
and the chapter begins with going through uh, the little summary that I just went through in terms of the three types of phenomena of um, conditioned phenomena as opposed to unconditioned phenomena and conditioned phenomena have three main types of material consciousness and uh, non-associated formative factors. Uh, let's see, its definition is posited conditioned phenomena that are neither material form nor consciousness. So you see, uh, once again, how the, the categorization and the definitions of these things becomes more and more relative and sort of circular. Things are defined in terms of each other. And we saw the first example of that was matter. <laughs> that which is suitable to be matter. Form is that which is suitable to be form to some, ex uh, to some extent. They're called non-associative formative factors since they are, they are the aggregate of formation. This is the fourth skanda, aggregate of formation, that is not concomitant with the mind. So they're saying that there's part of the fourth skanda that is concomitant with the mind and part of it that's not. And this is the, version, the view of the early school is uh, let, let's uh, take another quick look at uh, one of these guys. Here we go. These 75 dharmas. So um, matter is the first skanda. Mind is the sixth skanda in this case. And uh, skanda Two is feeling, skanda three is discrimination, and they're actually included in this category called mental factors. And mental factors are concomitant with mind. They arise simultaneously with mind. They, we'll see later when it's defined mental factors, but there are these five what are called congruencies. They have the same sense base, i.e. the mind. They're simultaneous in terms of time. They have the same object as the mind. And there's a couple of others I can't remember offhand. Uh, but then there's these guys, and these are in the, the fourth skanda but they're not concomitant with mind. They have a, a sort of independent status of some nebulous type. Instances include, include the three characteristics of the arising, disintegrating, and enduring of any phenomena such as a vase, birth, subsistence, and decay. Um, time in terms of years, months, and days. Let's see if we have time here. No, we don't really have time, but okay. This version has time. And um, propensities, things, sorry, persons, propensities, things, impermanence, functions such as a vase holding water, and directions such as east, south, west, north, and so on. Did you say that all of these are considered mental factors? 
No, I said that oh. these are, are not mental factors. They're not the sentence where it says they're... I thought you said they were part of the fourth skanda. That's right. So um, on the second paragraph, the second sentence says they're called non-associated formative factors since they are the aggregate of formation, which means they're the fourth skanda. That part of the fourth skanda that is not concomitant with the mind. So the fourth skanda has these two sort of categories. One is factors that are concomitant with the mind, which we would call mental factors, and factors or um, form formations that are not concomitant with the mind, which are not associated formations. And they give this hodgepodge of a list, which is very odd that they include things in there. But anyway, the uh, arising, enduring, and disintegration of a vase refers to, for example, the new arising of a vase that did not exist before, the vase enduring in its own time, and the non-endurance of the vase in the second moment in the aftermath of its own temporal existence. So trying to describe factors much as we might describe, uh, um, come up with uh, energies or uh, f uh, forces such as gravity. Um, how many forces are there in Western version of the world? Is there is there strong gravity, gravitational force, and weak? Strong and weak are different than gravity. Okay, so there's gravity, and then there's levity. I don't no. think so. Electromagnetic. <laughs> so strong force, weak force in the atoms, right? And then there's electromagnetic. And then there's gravity, four. So there's four forces in nature in the scientific version. Gravity, electromagnetism, and strong and weak nuclear forces. Is that an accurate way of describing them? Cool. Okay. So similar sort of animals uh, in some way. Um, Your suggestion is that we would we would consider those non-associative formations in sort of the Western metaphysical schema. Yeah, we would say these these are these are phenomena that uh, are productive. They they uh, in some way uh, produce a function. They have an effect, and yet they're neither mind nor matter. And so we would create a, a subcategory for them of forces. If we, were I was to. wondering. Wondering too if uh, something like mathematics would be like numbers would, would uh, those be fit? Could you fit those in that this category? Yeah, yeah. Like uh, um, all all numbers in general, or certain numbers like zero or pi. Only um, only even numbers. <laughs> N numeration. That's pretty odd of you. The infinite set of even numbers. Okay. Uh, let's see. Since these characteristics, and I'm on the second sentence of the third paragraph, are effects produced by the same single collection of causes that gave rise to the vase, they too are conditioned phenomena. Now, this statement, these are characteristics. These characteristics are effects produced by the same single collection of causes that gave rise to the vase. That statement is uh, something that we'll come to, and, and it's this idea that uh, 
disintegration is inherent in production. That uh, when things are produced, they automatically disintegrate. They're, they're programmed for that. So there's not a separate set of causes that come about to produce disintegration of a phenomenon. But that's not uh, really um, part of what we're describing here. Just trying to f uh, explain the way this was phrased. Now, if these three characteristics were material form, there's no way other than for them to be the material form of the vase itself. However, they do not constitute the material form of the vase, nor are they forms of consciousness. Hence, they must be posited as attributes of the vase and non-associated formative factors. Now, the example vase is a little bit of an odd example because uh, vases are made up of what? matter what kind of matter could be different things clay metal what in the buddhist system that we've been uh, fascinated with so to speak what kind of matter they made as a vase made up of just like everything else is made up of earth the the <laughs> elements <laughs> the great before, elements before the great four great elements, elements. okay four great right. elements Okay. Right. Okay. Uh, let's see. The next the next paragraph, the topic of time, years, months, and so on, will be addressed below. As for persons, it is a phenomena imputed on four or five aggregates. So we look at uh, so this imputed on means on the basis of experiencing. Or observing something, we conclude that there is something. So that's the imputation process. And so upon observing four or five aggregates, we conclude that there's a person there. Now, when we see each other in these squares, how many of our of the aggregates of this phenomena that you're looking at, it's talking, blabbing right now, how many do you experience? Just form. Two. Two. Yeah, color, color and shape, right? Oh, but you, we get sound, sound also. Oh, sound. There you go. And uh, but only the form aggregate. You're only experiencing my form aggregate. Um, so you're you're uh, inferring that I'm like you, and I'm a person. You experience your own aggregates, and upon the basis of your experience of your own aggregates you impute this idea that there's a person and a person is uh, that entity which um, is the uh, continuum of the karmic activity of those aggregates and it's a little hard to describe they'll talk about it in a minute i believe given that all three material form consciousness and non-associative formative factors are the basis for the designation of the term person it would be difficult to posit the person as either material form or consciousness so um, given given that all three are the basis for the designation of the term pers person so based on uh, the experience that we have of ourselves as having a material form 
and having a mind. We come up with this idea of an owner of the situation. I don't know that we could say that we experience our non-associated formations. That's a little bit odd way to put things, but let's see if they explain that further later on. Hence, on the next page, non-associated formative factors is the only viable candidate for the category uh, to put the, the uh, phenomena person into. The type topic of the person too shall be discussed in a later section. There's, I think there's a separate section on persons because they're such a pain in the butt. Propensities too are posited as non-associated formative factors. For example, after the mind cognizes an object such as a person. So here we have the presumption of saying that one possible object of the mind includes the person. So when we looked at that chart of the ayatanas and the datus and so forth, the objects of mental activity and mental consciousness includes matter, it includes consciousness, and it also includes non-associated formations such as a person. So the mind is unique in that it can uh, have as its object all three types of phenomena of, of things whereas the object of the eye is exclusively matter the objects of the other five senses is exclusively matter but the mind has all three types of phenomena according to this system is is the so you're saying the notion of person which is a naf that if we think about a person it's not a thought it's something different than a thought well the the uh Yeah, so, so this is the conundrum, thank you, this is the conundrum of thoughts. Um, when it we... It like you could break it down, still break it down into just two. If you, you know, a NAF doesn't fall into the other two categories, but when you're thinking about one, it could be still just a thought, seems like. I think they wanna, they wanna create room for like, like a person to exist if you're not thinking about them. So there's there's some sort of like identity that they have independent of your thought. Well, we shouldn't be doing that, should we? I don't think we should, but it's what they seem to be doing. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> great. Thank you, you two, that's, that's awesome. But, yeah. but if we're talking about what is an object of, if we're still just talking about what's an object of consciousness, the, the object of consciousness could still be the thought, even if the thought is a mistaken thought that that there's this independent reality out there. Yeah, thought thought as the object of mental consciousness is not an accurate or helpful way to construe things. Um, thought is like I think thought in the realm of the consciousness datu is akin to um, the neural activity of the visual processing system in the realm of the visual datu. And uh, the objects of mind are, um, the objects include the objects of the other five senses. 
Another object of mind is mind itself or awareness itself. sirens <laughs> and um, and also non-associated formations are observable by the mind so thoughts are not the objects of mind uh, so we have to figure out what thoughts are at some point let's let's put that on our list uh, and let's keep going and see how they grapple with that um, for example, after the mind cognizes an object such as a person, a latent potential is left behind that has the capacity to give rise to recollection of that person, even though the mental event itself has ceased. This kind of latent potency is referred to as a propensity. Things get weirder and weirder, huh? Such an imprint is not a material form, nor is it a form of awareness. It's merely a potential left by an imprinting cognition. Hence, it must be categorized as a non-associated formative factor, thus products, impermanent phenomena, and functional things, all of which are mutually inclusive, i.e. synonymous contain the three categories of material form consciousness and non-associated formative factors, yet they themselves must be characterized as non-associated formative factors. There? Yes. Was that just a description of, of essentially memory or how mind stores things without the before using the eighth consciousness like a non-eighth consciousness model where they yeah, just, I, did they just turn it into a math yeah i made the mistake of skipping the first sentence of this paragraph which is propensities so propensities are included in non-associated formations they're posited as non-associated formations and so there the authors are giving a, an example of a propensity and so that concluding sentence that says, um, they themselves must be char characterized as non-associated formative factors, I think refers to propensities. So they're one of the non-associated formative factors. Furthermore, there are countless conditioned things that are neither matter nor awareness, such as, and you know, this whole category you've already seen is really a, an oddity and it gets more and more odd and this is uh, one of the areas that the later schools attack very easily furthermore there are countless conditions things that are neither matter nor awareness such as the act of a woodcutter chopping wood <laughs> i don't think any one of us would have come up with that as a thing we would have broken that down into numerous things like there's wood there's a there's a person who maybe has an implement of wood cutting such as an axe or chainsaw and uh, so forth but the uh they're using that as an example for some strange reason the emergence of cause and effect in a sequence and the possession of attributes of by a person and so on so uh, the more important ones are how do we describe 
memory? How do we describe um, the uh, the uh, similar the uh, continuity of karmic activities such as habitual patterns? How do you account for habit patterns, which is this idea of propensities? So what this are, is what I think. What Eric was asking, in a sense, I think, was that there in this system at this stage we don't have any consciousness concept right there's no storehouse consciousness right at this stage so therefore what is their model for where all this uh, operates well the eighth consciousness just gives it a place but it, it does make it sort of feel you know like hangs together better but, but, in but even, thing, then, even yeah. then you have to figure out you know so Okay, so you've named the place where the propensities live, and you know, but what are those propensities? Given that there really is no such place either, it's it's still all concept. But right. so they just operated with, they operated with the notion of imprints, but no organizing descriptive way to say this is where they sit. Right. Um, exactly. But so I mean, it's, the funny thing I just realized in relooking at this is that what they're classifying as maps in many cases is just conceptual constructs oh totally that's what that's what i was just getting at. the later schools are like this is all just concept these okay. are not real these are not things right um, that's why that's why i thought um you know just to bring up mathematics again is, is yeah, an interesting numbers. thing because like, like those can presumably pre perform some sort of function you know, and it's, yeah, it's mathematics a is a great example. Yeah, and you know, there's there's a lot of interesting philosophy that's been done about our math is math like real in some sense. Yeah, there's these laws that emerge and are describable using what we call mathematics, but are just like sort of symbolic uh, language to describe them. But they they follow what we would call mathematical laws in this very un, unusual way. So yeah, and, and you know, logic, logic is kind of the same thing. Like, like yeah. the law of non-contradiction is that, is that a real thing? Does that apply, you know, everywhere all the time or not? Uh, right, right. The excluded middle things like that. Oh, at let's see. End, at the very end of the reading, it then says, "Well, masters have also said that all concepts are unconditioned." Right. Which, which, exactly. Which is what like I was just, just imply, uh, referring to. Like, these concepts doing work or aren't they? And it's just hard for them to decide. And it's hard for us to figure out what they're trying to do. You, you muted yourself right at the end there, but I think yeah. I got your point that they're trying to like come up with, you know, these th this uh, school, the Vaibhashaga and Savitrantaga are offshoots of the Sarvastava and everything exists school. So they're trying uh -huh. to account for everything that they experience in the phenomenal world. And, um, and they take these things to be real and productive forces, you know, so it's obviously it's really shaky and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in many different ways, but uh, it's sort of interesting to see what they put in there and how they try to make it work. Be because, you know, why is it interesting? I think because I think we subconsciously do the same thing. And we believe that there's uh, a level of reality to our conceptual world. Okay, so uh, let's see. 
the emergence of cause and effect in a sequence, possession of attributes by a person, and so on. When classified, non-associated formative factors consist of 14 types. So here's the traditional scheme of obtainment. So, so another one, one phenomena, either mind or matter, obtains another phenomena or a habit or something. Non-obtainment, you lose the propensity for something. Homogeneity, similarity, uh, state of non-discernment, and these are re references to different uh, meditative trances, meditative attainment of non-discernment, meditative attainment of cessation, faculty of life force. You know, what is, what is it that um, is present in a living being that's not present in a non-living being from one second to the next when a living being dies? So that's life force. Um, the four characteristics of conditioned phenomena arising during aging and disintegrating, the collection of names, the collection of phrases, and the collection of letters. And uh, as Chris is saying, it's, it's very, numbers are so similar, it's a little bit odd that they didn't include them in there. But I have one they question. Do, they do include them in a later listing a later list cool thank you Asanga. uh and so he just then quotes from the treasury of knowledge skipping out of these obtainment is explained as a substance enabling the possession of that which is obtained within one's mind stream so you you obtain knowledge you you obtain understanding or experience how does that happen what is that this uh too is considered to be something separate from the thing obtained just as, for example, the rope securing a load exists separately from the load. In this way, unlike higher philosophical schools, Sautrantika, mind only, and the middle way, the Vaibhashika school holds all remaining non-associated formative factors to be not only imputed as properties of other phenomena, but also existing with a separate identifiable nature of their own. So this sort of sums it up. You could take the uh, sort of reverse of this statement um, and apply that to all the other schools. So the Sautrantika mind only and middle way schools hold that non-associative formative factors, factors um, are only imputed as properties of other phenomena. And the Vaibhashikas are unique in saying that additionally they exist with their own entity. Non-obtainment is asserted to be the substance that constitutes the non-possession of something that is not obtained. Homogeneity is a substance that causes the similarity of conduct, thought, and characteristics within sentient being. State of non-discernment is the substance that temporarily brings to an end the minds and mental factors in the mind streams of gods born in the realm of discernment. <laughs> so if you're in the, one of the absorptions of this discernment, and uh, you experience a moment of non-discernment, you immediately say goodbye to your buddies in that God realm. Meditative attainment of cessation is the substance, and it's amazing that they're using the term substance, which we saw applies to both mind and matter, but it also applies to non-associative formations. They're substantially real. Um, Acts, let's see, uh, the meditative attainment of non, sorry, 
Meditative attainment of cessation is the substance that temporarily stops minds and mental factors in the mind streams of aria beings. So uh, you have a mind stream without a, a mind and a, without mental factors. The mind and mental factor of an aria have been temporarily stopped in this cessation trance, which is, you know, they also needed to explain, just like we saw in uh, matter where they have derivative form as a way of explaining what people experience in the absorption states where they manifest form and so forth, the elements. Here we have um, these, these trance states of cessation trance. How do you describe cessation trance where mind and mental factors cease? And, and how do you wake up from a cessation trance as the same so-called person with the same propensities or mental fact, uh, memories and so forth? Um, and until one arises from that meditative attainment, meditative attainment of cessation. Sorry, I read that already. My mind is not, not functional. Uh, independence on the mind of the summit of existence. So the cessation trance occurs at the summit of exist existence in terms of the three realms, in terms of the uh, uh, the absorption state scheme. And life force is taken to be the life of beings or persons and is said to be the basis of either heat or consciousness. And then he goes into a long discussion of life force, which I don't think is relevant. And we can just stay with uh, the treasury of knowledge says life force is life, which is the support of heat and consciousness, and leave it simply as that. I'm curious why they don't consider uh, this as that as related to matter in some way. It seems to be a force that also creates a certain type of consciousness. I don't know. Because hmm. I was wondering when you were talking about the Western parallels. I was wondering about those as well in terms of why whether those forces would well, also yeah so life force it's like somebody I, dies and their senses are still functional and you can literally transplant senses from one individual to another and they can function you mean organs or sense organs yeah but there's they, they're not working so the life force must somehow impact the uh, mind I guess. I don't. Um, I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure that. I don't know if that example. It's, just, it's the. I mean, I think they have to take it out fairly quickly, supposedly, and so there's. I think they're dealing with like a physical object, supposedly, that they replace, and that because the other being has life force, it works. But I don't, I don't know. know if it has anything to do with the mind. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, skipping the rest of the life force and then uh, ending up on page 146 in the middle, which uh, for Cynthia's after, there's a bunch of quotes on life force. And then after the quote, there's a couple of paragraphs. And then the next paragraph says the four characteristics of conditioned phenomena. Good. 
are so-called because they illustrate a given phenomena as a conditioned thing. Arising indicates generation, enduring indicates continued existence, aging indicates decay, and impermanence indicates destruction. The Vaibhashikas assert these four to arise simultaneously to the conditioned entity, and that they're capable of being grasped as distinct in substance from the conditioned thing itself. <laughs> so this is, this is a, uh, uh, you know, one of the uh, more interesting uh, ex um, instances of this non-associative formations, where uh, the question of uh, simultaneity of moments of uh, phenomena's existence. If you say that a phenomena exists for only one moment, then it has to arise, subsist, and disintegrate all in that one moment. <laughs> right? Otherwise, you say that you're saying that it exists over the course of four moments, and then how is that the same phenomena? How can it exist from one moment to the next? So it has to be all simultaneous, which also is obviously absurd, uh, but that's what they came up with. Uh, let's see. As crazy as the particle thing. Yeah. Of this, you know, but at the same time, they're trying to describe a, a very down to earth uh, phenomena of how do things arise and pass away? What is what is the force that does that? How do how does that happen? Why? I think <clears throat> it's also worth mentioning that uh, you know the Buddhists weren't operating in a vacuum in India, and you know the the Nyayaka Hindu school. Uh, possessed similarly, you know, kooky ideas about things existing. You know. Yeah, yeah. In some cases, even kookier, and some cases yeah. less. But, so it's, it's not as though um, the Buddhists had the monopoly, the market cornered on uh, yeah, strange, yeah. strange metaphysics. Totally, totally. I think the Buddhists were probably le a little less kooky than most of the others, if not all. Of the three nouns, phrases, and letters, nouns refer to that which expresses merely the thing itself, as discussed earlier in the section pertaining to linguistic sounds. The, the word material form is an example of this. Phrases refers to expressions that indicate their reference in terms of the prediction of attributes, such as, for example, impermanent form. And letters are the basis of nouns and words, for example, the Tibetan letter ka and so on. A collection refers to the bodies of these three things. So, how, how do how do you account for the expressive power of letters, uh, of words that are made up of letters and assembled in phrases? It's, it's interesting that they grappled with that in the same way. That the Vaibhashikas assert these three to be non-associative formative factors, as mentioned in Vasubandhu's auto commentary. They're not the natural essence of speech, for even if speech is sound, sound alone does not give rise to the understanding of meaning. You know, so how does sound give, how do we get meaning out of sounds? Why speech engages nouns and nouns express meaning? So somehow they, they figured there must be some other thing, so to speak, or literally speaking thing that's involved in communicative sound that makes it different from non-communicative sound and conveys meaning. It's sort of um, odd because it seems like there was there were periods, I don't know for sure, I'm not an uh, expert on this, but sort of, you know, there was a time before written language and before the concept of a noun, I think, would have existed, but 
there was verbal, you know, I think verbal communication predated the the written and the uh, obviously, yeah, and the nouns and all of that grammatical structure. So I'm kind of curious: did they forget that, or did they not acknowledge that 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 meaning was conveyed long before the concept of nouns? Uh, well, well, I think they would respond that meaning was conveyed by virtue, or in in noun uh, meaning was conveyed by the use of nouns arranged in phrases way before things were written down and way before grammar was worked out but there were still nouns like things and then there were phrases that uh, the the reference to things were arranged within and that letters were you know we think of letters as our alphabet they think of letters as the roots of sounds and so there's various sound roots that they've been saying from the beginning of, of you know recorded history that uh, then they give letters to but when they say letters they're not talking about the physical letter they're talking about the the root sound but but what you're saying is that there's sort of an implicit sense that the nouns were the sense of noun was embedded even in a in our conceptual even, mind yeah that, yeah that we have this sense that there's a thing and i'm talking about the thing in a certain way actually you know it's interesting you said that if, if this came up because i read an article i was going to send you a clip of it or some, um it was talking about the indigenous languages it was a mm. indigenous person writing about learning her own Oh, I've read some stuff about that, like from Orion. Man, Orion yeah, man, did you read that one? I did. That was really cool. There was a particular section. There were two two parts that were interesting in this one paragraph that related to our Buddhist thinking. One was, let's see if I can remember them. I marked it. Um, one was the notion Beans. of nouns and verbs. The whole, I mean, that basically their language is more of verbs than nouns. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, the whole idea of, you know. Fixation of phenomena was very much lessened were were very solid solidified or reifying and they were much more fluid and then there was this also this neat thing about beans right there well definitely the everything you know they're much more of an animistic you know everything the whole world is animated yeah and, you know and so that there's a difference there but they also did i think have a line that specifically talked about the difference of a sound of a natural object versus the man-made one which i thought right. was like right in yeah. there gateway yeah. of knowledge right yeah that was cool yeah that was a neat article if yeah, you have it you can it, circulate it yeah okay just one one thing i wanted to to add about this conversation of, of language was there was a, a a popular idea in in india in ancient india was was the fact that or not ancient but sort of like semi i don't know what you call this period in antiquity um there was the idea that Sanskrit was like an eternal language that always existed, um, and and that and and that the the uh, Vedas in particular, which were written in Sanskrit, were were always they, eternal as well, and yeah. and were not written, right. and, and that's kind of what lended them their legitimacy. So yeah, that's cool. That's part of the cultural milieu that that this is responding to. So yeah, there's a yeah, notion like of, of language as like an eternal universal structure. Yeah, much is like color. Man. Yeah, much is like color and shape are like pre-existing phenomena that our eyes are able to perceive. Languages are language and nouns and so forth are are they are independent of us developing them. 
Uh, so skipping over to Abid, uh, Asanga's version on the page 147 in the middle, the upper Abhidharma system, such as the compendium of Abhidharma by Asanga, adds the following nine factors, thus making 23 in total, continuity, distinction, union, rapidity, <laughs> sequence, time, location, enumeration, ding, 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 and assembly. And then they just repeat that in uh, in the long form. And uh, we have definitions of all of them on the next page from the higher Abhidharma system from the compendium, which we don't need to go through. Well, actually, let's let's start with uh, the ones that were new. Ones that are new begin with, let's see, continuity and distinction, collection of letters, ordinary beings, continuity on page 149. Continuity, like in the middle there, is the continuum of cause and effect, not being severed. Uh, what is distinction? Cause and effect being distinguished as separate phenomena. What is union? It's the effect being in harmony with its cause. Rapidity is uh, cause and effect arising instantly, as uh, they say swiftly, I would say instantly. Sequence is that they arise discreetly. Time is cause and effect occurring in a continuous stream. Location, it is cause and effect existing in all 10 directions and enumeration, it is distinct, separate, formative factors. It's an odd definition. What is assembly? It is the assembly of the conditions of cause and effect. Um, based on the explanation of these 23, other associative, non-associative rather, formative factors should be understood as well, that this number is not exhaustive of non-associated formative factors is demonstrated by some of the commentarial treatises. Mind Only School and others identify NAFs as nominal existence imputed on the state of form as well as on minds and mental factors and do not accept as the Vaibhashikas do that they possess a substantially distinct reality separate from their basis of designation. Nevertheless, there are neither material forms nor mind that such non-associative formative factors or nominal existence is affirmed by that above passage and the following passage, which we don't need to read. Then we have cause and effects, chapter or section 11. Causes, anything that is a condition phenomena such as material phenomena, consciousness, as well as non-associated formative factors, necessarily comes into being in dependence on its causes and conditions. So here we shall briefly present this principle of causation. The meaning of cause is that which produces its effect, is the definition. Furthermore, when, given, when a given cause exists, there is a possibility that effects can come into being. This is a very well-worded phrase. When a given cause exists, there is the possibility that effects can come into being. The possibility, it's not absolutely a given, but it creates the possibility. It's back to the Rice Seedling Sutra, which, right? Yeah, which is the nuance presented in the Rice Seedling Sutra about the way interdependent origination works. Uh, it's the propensity 
but uh, their possibility. And this very basis of dependence is what's called causation. Dharmakirti's exposition of valid cognition states when it exists, that arises. And when it changes, that changes as well. This is referred to as the cause. In general, this texts speak of various usages of the term cause. The cause of origination, such as the production of consciousness from the assembly of the three conditions. What are the three conditions? Arising, enduring, and disintegrating, I imagine. The cause of uh, the three conditions. No, the three conditions would be the sense faculty, the sense object, and the sense consciousness. Something like that. The cause of abiding, such as the four types of nourishment that sustain the body. And they have, there's a whole different system for matter of how matter causes causation of functions in matter versus in mind. The cause of supporting, such as how earth supports everything. The cause of illumination, such as in the illumination of objects by a lamp. Cause of transformation, such as how fire transforms firewood into ashes, presumably, and how the goldsmith transforms gold by beating it. The cause of prevention, such as the prevention of illness by medicine, and the cause of obtainment, such as how medicine helps obtain the happy state of freedom from illness, and the proximate cause, such as the direct cause, and the distant cause, such as the indirect cause, and the evidential cause or explanatory reason such as the inferential cognition of fire by taking the smoke as the reason or discerning another's intended meaning on the basis of a proof statement. So inferential, inf uh, the, the evidential causes of one of the three factors of uh, inferential statement syllogism. In general, evidential cause means reason, and in some contexts, a single cause may be posited as both an explanatory reason which was earlier in the list, and a productive cause. For example, in the text of Prasanga Madhyamaka, the exhaustion of oil is taken as both the productive cause and the explanatory reason for the demise of an oil lamp flame. Now, this is an, a very interesting example, uh, believe it or not. It seems like a ra rather boring and a little bit odd example, but the, uh, the the last moment of the continuum of a flame is used as an object of debate as to whether it's a thing or not. <laughs> and there's a lot of nuance to it. It's uh, starting with um, this idea that what is a thing? A uh, thing is... Uh, um, is uh, performs a function and the main function is that it uh, perform it produces the next moment of its own continuum. So if uh, the flame of a lamp uh, from moment to moment is said to produce the next moment of a flame of a lamp, of an oil burning, an oil lamp, but at the end when the oil burns off, that last flicker of light produces, instead of producing another moment of flicker of light, it doesn't produce anything. And so is that last moment of the flame of an oil lamp a thing? <laughs> it's a little
little bit of an absurd example. And then uh, what is the, the cause of the exhaustion of the lamp of the flame? And they say that the cause of the exhaustion of the lamp of a flame, of a burning oil lamp, is the um, demise or um, exhaustion of the fuel. I don't know that we would say that's the cause of the, uh, you know, would, would we put it that way, that the cause of the non-occurrence um, of a flame in the continuum of a burning oil lamp flame is caused by the exhaustion of fuel. So I how think can, that's fair. Well, the exhaustion of fuel is a non-thing. It, uh, there is, you're saying there is no more fuel. There's no more gas. So how can that produce something? The, because it's not really there. You're saying oh, something absence. that's not there is producing something. You're saying, okay, well, in, moment, in moment X, we have oil and that's producing a flame. And then in the moment Y, we don't have oil and that not having oil is producing no flame. Why is it not producing wind or bananas or it's it's just producing a situation in which flame cannot occur i don't think we in the west would describe the situation in that way we we would i think take a, a little bit different tact on it we would say that um the presence of uh, a wick and oil produces and ignition produces a flame and oxygen don't forget oxygen thank you air that's why we have air and uh in the absence of any one of those factors air oil wick and ignition then it doesn't come about but you wouldn't say that the absence of of um air produces a non-flame. I, I don't know. I, it seems to me that, as you say, you know, let's say there's four or five different factors. You remove any one of them, and the flame can't occur. But if, if you say produces a non-flame, then you've made non-flame into a thing I, well, that was produced by a cause. And non I'm, not, flame, I'm not using the words you used. I just think well, that's what that's what they're using. I'm, right. I'm trying to use what they're using and, and stick with it understanding and explaining their idea of the the uh, the moment of after the last moment of a candle flame and uh, this is relevant partially for a number of reasons one is because the way that enlightenment or nirvana is described in the early tradition is like the blowing out of a flame and there's no more of the uh, productive factors involved in the continuum of ascension being for there to be the next moment of ascension being at the time of the complete enlightenment of uh, buddha and so uh, a buddha is said to be like the the going out of a fire even in that earlier case where we were talking about the cessation and they were talking about it in terms of a substance stopping you know, causing cessation, which seemed very odd because I always thought it was that the the fuel that you know of uh, klesha runs out, and therefore you have cessation. 
So it's not like you need a separate substance to stop it, but earlier in that text, it seemed like it was talking as if there was some new thing that came along as opposed to just the running out of the existing fuel. Yeah, but uh, yes, uh, and uh, both ways of describing it beg the question of, is enlightenment produced or not? Uh, you know, I and, think it's and, not though, because it's already there. And well, the earlier the tradition, oh, the okay. earlier tradition views it as being produced. Is that isn't, it produced? isn't it unconditioned even on the earlier lists? Isn't it one of the three unconditioned things? Um, I, I don't think the state of Buddhahood or the state of um, Arhatship is in that list. Okay, so then maybe at the end, of the, if we get to the end of the reading, we'll see how we'll talk about those unconditioned things, that cessation that's listed there. That's it, a big question I have. Yeah, so how, how does an arhat come, come about? How do you obtain, you know, we talked about obtainment as a naf. How does one obtain arhatship? Is it something that's, is it like a thing that is uh, uh, gathered up or obtained? Anyway. I thought it, it was like the exhaustion of the causes of, you know, the, it was supposed to be the exhaustion of klesha and I don't know what else. I thought it was more of an exhaustion thing, but who knows? For the empowerment more, from a Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> Furthermore, the Buddha's texts speak in terms of the twofold notions of causes and conditions. So there are contexts in which one speaks of the cause of a specific phenomenon. It must be understood as referring to the primary agent that produced it, such as its substantial cause. In contrast, condition needs to be understood as referring to those factors that assist in the production of the effects, such as the cooperative conditions. And he quotes Kamala Sheila causes, refers to the substantial causes for their unique to the phenomena conditions, refers to cooperatives for their shared. Therefore, when the causing conditions of specific phenomena are differentiated, then causes and conditions are not equivalent in meaning. In general, however, causes and conditions are equivalent with respect to their reference. Regarding the classification of these two, various presentations are found in the text. For example, according to the Vibhashika system, there is a presentation of six causes and four types of condition, such as the causal condition, objective condition, dominant condition, and immediately preceding condition. And this is the most commonly used scheme. And uh, we already have encountered this. And in terms of... Uh, uh, in particular, the a moment of consciousness of a, a given type. Given that this six-fold classification of causes is a specific viewpoint of the Vaibhashika school, we shall discuss this later in the section on philosophy. Similarly, since the presentation of the four conditions is more closely related to how cognitions arise, we shall discuss this later in the presentation of the subjective mind. In general, uh, in brief, generally, when classified from the perspective of time, causes are twofold, the direct cause and the indirect cause. From the perspective of the way in which they produce their effects, causes consist of both the substantial cause and the cooperative condition. So we have these four aspects of cause, two sets of two types of cause. Um, 
A direct cause is defined as the direct producer of its effect. For example, fire is the direct cause of smoke, which is its effect and its cause. The direct producer of smoke, that is its effect, because no other cause intervened temporally between that fire and its immediate effect, the smoke. This explanation should be extended to other phenomena. An indirect cause is defined as the indirect producer of its effect. For example, firewood is the indirect cause of smoke, which is its effect. Firewood cannot directly produce smoke, which is its effect, but produces it through fire intervening between the two, substantially and temporally. Substantial cause is defined as the principal product of its substantial effect within its own substantial continuum. And this one is confusing because they defined it as an effect. <laughs> a substantial cause is defined as the principal, sorry, uh, they didn't define it as an effect, but we'll see them coming together. The principal producer of, of its substantial effect within its own substantial continuum. So there's this notion of substantial a relationship between cause continuum and effect. Alternatively, it can be defined as that which primarily produces the essential nature of its effect as opposed to the attributes. For example, a rice seed is the substantial cause of a rice sprout, which is its effect, and clay is the substantial cause of a clay vase, which is its effect. And uh, skipping the quote, a cooperative condition is defined as that which primarily produces its cooperative effects outside its own substantial continuum. Alternatively, it can be defined as that which primarily produces the attributes as opposed to the essential nature of the effect. For example, water and fertilizer are the cooperative conditions of a sprout in, in this scenario of a rice sprout. They are called cooperative conditions of a sprout since they act as conditions of the sprout together with the seed. And they quote Dharmakirti on this. And um, he says after that, thus Dharmakirti speaks of how the present body and consciousness reside together, each with its own distinct substantial causes while acting as each other's cooperative condition analogously although the melted copper and the fire that have arisen from the preceding moment of fire and copper are not substantial causes of each other they still reside together in brief cooperative conditions are to complement substantial causes in their production of effects furthermore not only is there a difference between the two regarding whether they produce their effects within their own substantial continuum but substantial causes are also unique whereas cooperative causes are shared with other effects for example a barley seed acts as the cause of a barley sprout but does not act as the cause of a rice sprout similarly a rice seed acts as the cause of a rice sprout etc therefore these seeds are posited as unique causes whereas water and fertilizer are recognized as common causes since they serve as the causes of both contributing causes of both effects. Alternatively, one could say that the substantial cause is the principal producer of the essential nature of the effect, whereas cooperative conditions are the principal producers of its attributes. For example, whether a barley sprout, sorry, <laughs> whether a barley sprout grows or a rice sprout grows is the function of the substantial cause, whereas the height and quality of the sprout 
are principally the function of the cooperative conditions of warmth and soil and moisture and sunlight and so forth. One might ask, what then is the measure of something becoming a cause of something else? When something becomes endowed with the potency to produce a given thing, it can then be posited as having become a cause of that entity. So we see this very long-winded uh, attempt to explain causal conditions because it's, it's really one of the, the most important things is how do things, uh, how does change come about? How are things uh, impacted by other phenomena? Um, let's see, one might ask uh, that paragraph again, what then is the measure of something become a cause in, of something else when that, when something becomes endowed with the potency to produce a given thing, it can then be posited as having become a cause of that entity. Skipping the quote, for example, when a field transforms from its winter state, where it does not produce any sprouts to the... Uh, the field then becomes a productive cause capable of generating sprouts. This is so because when the field is well nurtured, for example, through plowing, an excellent result such as good harvest is observed. Thus, whether something is an external or internal phenomenon, it is through the combination of both a substantial cause and a cooperative conditions that they must arise. So, for example, in order for a sprout to rise, it must do so in dependence and accumulation of many causing conditions, such as its substantial cause, the seed, its cooperative conditions, water fertilizer, and so on. A solitary seed cannot produce a sprout. And without the seed, water and fertilizer alone cannot produce the sprout. And this applies to other conditioned phenomena. It's, it's funny because he just, just said that in one case, the field, which is essentially the soil, whatever, was the cause and then later he said it's the condition i mean in a sense that it, it's putting it in sort of two different roles the the field example was odd in general because a field is such a collective noun it's like such a large-scale phenomenon yeah, that one was compared probably to not the other a, ones it's, not very it's like bizarre yeah it's strange that they chose that uh Next page, 156, effects. An effect is defined as something that's produced by its cause. <laughs> Pretty simple, straightforward. See how that works. For example, a sprout is posited as the effect of a seed and smoke the effect of fire, as if they were different phenomena. And he, skipping the quote, Dharmakirti explains how because smoke is contingent on fire and follows as its consequence and that it would not exist if there... Uh, where no fire, smoke constitutes an effect of the fire. Contrast the smoke were to exist even if there was no fire, then smoke would be something that does not possess any cause at all. If differentiated effects are classified from the perspective of time into two, direct effects and indirect effects, when differentiated from the perspective of the continuum, of effects are classified into substantial and cooperative, just like the way causes were that are separated temporally or they're, they're uh, distinguished in terms of uh, their uh, sort of um, importance in terms of the scheme of causation in general. And uh, so I'm going to skip the rest of these direct the definitions. Well, I'll just read the definition. The direct effect is that which is produced directly, for example, smoke, direct effect of fire. 
An indirect effect is that which is produced indirectly. For example, smoke that is an indirect effect of fire wood. Substantial cause is that which is produced, primarily produced within its substantial continuum. For example, a clay vase is the substantial effect of the clay that is its cause. And a cooperative effect is that which is primarily produced outside its substantial continuum. For example, the clay vase is a cooperative effect of the potter, who is one of its causes. Next paragraph from beef. Substantial effects arising from the substantial causes include such things, things such as cloth from wool and thread, clay vases from clay, gold vases from gold, and sprouts from seeds. Cooperative effects, on the other hand, arise from their cooperative conditions, such as the arising of the above-mentioned things from the weaver, potter, goldsmith, and so on. What then is the difference between causes and effects, one may ask? In general, the two are considered to be equivalent. <laughs> Eric was already laughing. <laughs> I was trying to build up to this one. I love this. Um, for example, a vase is an effect of its own cause and is also the cause of its own effect. <laughs> so without really explaining that they're talking about the, the continuum of its type, the uh, the different moments of its type continuum. Uh, so too, morning is the result of the night that preceded it, and at the same time it is the cause of the afternoon that follows it, and so on. This is true of all conditioned phenomena. This said in the context of a specific phenomena, the two are mutually inclusive. So in the, in the, in the case of... Um, in general, they're considered to be equivalent but in the case of a specific situation, the two are mutually exclusive. For example, fires the cause of smoke, and so forth. So we'll come we'll come across this again. I think this oddity of uh, causes and effects being so. So are they saying equivalent? The cause is the previous effect in the so, continuum of a uh, in a continuum in the like, continuum of a phenomenon is this the crime. proverbial chicken and egg notion it's sort of yeah the, yeah uh let's see unconditioned phenomena that's our last category uh before we move on to um other presentations of ascertainable objects when things get a little bit weirder Okay, in general, there are two main categories within knowable objects. Those are conditioned by causes and conditions and are subject to change, and those that are not. The first of these two are conditioned phenomena, and the second are unconditioned phenomena. We went through all the conditioned phenomena in this system using uh, the three groups. Unconditioned phenomena are defined as that which is devoid of the three characteristics of arising, ceasing, and enduring. Unconditioned phenomena and permanent phenomena are equivalent. So permanent doesn't necessarily mean last forever, but it just means that it doesn't have the characteristics of arising, ceasing, and enduring. In the lower Abhidharma, such as Vasubandhu's treasure of knowledge, three types of unconditioned phenomena are mentioned. Space, analytical cessation, and non-analytical cessation. Space is that which is free of obstruction and accommodates physical phenomena. They assert space to be a permanent substance that does not obstruct physical phenomena, turn is not obstructed by them, any of them. However, they assert the space element, which is part of the six elements, to be a visible form having the nature of either light or darkness. <laughs> 
go figure. Other British schools, beginning with the Southrontic school, define what is referred to as space in terms of a non-implicative negation. So here space is not a thing, but is the uh, uh, conceptual result of a non-implicative negation. There's nothing there, which is the mere absence of obstructive contact. Analytical, so he just says, you know, this, the Vaibhashikas view it as a real thing, and the Sautrantikas say it's not a real thing. Analytical cessation refers to the cessation of the afflictions relevant to one stage on the path owing to analytical wisdom. An example would be the total elimination of hatred that's attributable to the power of cultivating the path. Non-analytical cessation refers to the factor a factor that prevents the arising of future phenomena because of the power of incomplete conditions. For example, there is a cessation of hatred permanently, not because of the power of cultivating the path, but because the completion of the conditions giving rise to, ha to hatred have become impossible. So, um, if, instead of overcoming hatred by uh, uh, meditating on the, the uh, uh, negative consequences of hatred. Instead, one eliminates the sense of self that underlies and provides the context for hatred. Uh, let's see, skipping the quote, according to the Vaibhashika, space accommodates material objects and acts to support wind. Analytical cessation stops contaminated phenomena that are objects to be negated on the path. And non-analytical cessation inhibits the arising of objects of negation, such as the afflictions. So analytical cessation overcomes the afflictions, takes them head on, and non-analytical cessation takes on the causes of afflictions, which is the uh, ignorance that underlies them. Let's see. Uh, in Vasubandhu's treatise on the five aggregates, however, he adds a fourth type of unconditioned phenomena, suchness. And let's see how he defines suchness. At the bottom of this quote, he says, what is suchness? And the Sanskrit is ta-ta-ta. It is the reality of any phenomenon that pertains to phenomena and the person. In Asanga's compendium, however, unconditioned phenomena are classified in terms of the following eight types, in case you're interested in such things. Um, suchness of auspicious things, suchness of inauspicious things, suchness of neutral things, space, analytical cessation, non-analytical cessation, the immovable and cessation of discernment and feeling, which are uh, generally considered to be skandhas three and two. He describes these. What are the suchness of auspicious phenomena? It's the two selflessnesses, emptiness, signlessness, the reality limit, the ultimate state, and the expanse of reality. Why is suchness called suchness? Because it does not transform into something else. Why is it called emptiness? Because it does not act as the cause of that which is thoroughly afflicted. Why is it called signless? Uh, so these are the um, different aspects or attributes of the nature of reality. Why is it called reality limit? Because it is a focal object that lacks distortion. 
this is a very interesting description indicating that the suchness of phenomena is an object of knowledge. It's a focal object. Why is it called the ultimate state? Because it is the pure referent field of Aryan transcendent wisdom. It's the object of transcendent wisdom of an Arya. Why is it called the expansive reality? Because it is the cause of all the dharmas of Shravakas, solitary Buddhas and Buddhas. It acts as a cause. Derek, yes, we've, we've reached the part which I feel is like, this is the million dollar question. now. With the Asanga, we've wandered into Mahayana territory, it seems like, because we have like transcendent suchness as an object. But starting from the beginning of the chapter, it sounded like analytical cessation was like what you have on the path of seeing. It calls it liberation, freedom from complete freedom from the afflictions, which is uncompounded. And then there's the cessation of those afflictions. So is that, am I getting this wrong? Is that the, that's the big moment? That's the path of seeing for the, in the old school and the new school? Uh, that's not the way I took them. I took yeah, them that, to It be... didn't sound like you were. So I was not, that's why I'm asking. Like what, it sounds like that's the big, their big uncompounded thing, which then gets turned into almost like Buddha nature or, in the Mahayana, but their uncompounded never go back moment of cessation, no? You know, what, what you're bringing up is the main quandary about these, these so-called unconditioned phenomena is that do they describe like a state of a being? You know, ana analytical cessation as an unconditional phenomena, what does that mean? So uh, uh, an aria cultivates a cessation and experiences a cessation that let's say is an analytical cessation. And so that um, that state of being is, is a phenomena. I mean, the whole way of categorizing these as phenomena is is very foreign to me and never has quite made sense to be honest as you know phenomena well it's something that happens and it and because it happens there's a transformation but it's it's sort of uh it's sort of like the non-associated formative factors in my mind in that it's it's a function it's a way that that the path functions as opposed to a phenomena like matter or mind. And even in terms of you saying something that happens, it sort of goes along with what we were talking about before. Is it something that happens or something that ceases right. <laughs> to happen? But, but I guess the, the clarification I wanted was, is this the big moment of what happens on the path of seeing that you enter the land of the Aryas, your mind stream enters that change of state. And you're sort of saying maybe no, that's not what analytical cessation refers to. It, it, these are used differently in different schemes, but um, like the first one, analytical cessation of overcoming, the way that they describe it, overcoming hatred. That is not necessarily mean that one has achieved the path of seeing. Whereas 
um, overcoming the the underlying causes or sort of the underlying framework of a being to experience hatred in my mind would be indicative of having achieved the path of seeing that but one has it's a weird example because it says right before that refers to the cessation of the afflictions relevant to one stage on the path going to analytical wisdom and then they yeah. just as an example, as if they're just giving an example of hatred, but that's why it's so confusing. Like, it is confusing. Yeah. Okay. Um, analytical. Yeah. Thank you for this. So analytical cessation refers to the cessation of the afflictions relevant to one stage on the path owing to analytical wisdom. So it doesn't indicate what stage on the path, um, but one has analytical wisdom, which occurs in I think on all stages of the path, um, but in this case, it's the cessation of the afflictions. An example would be the total elimination of hatred that's attributable to the power of cultivating the path. And uh, non-analytical cessation refers to the factor that prevents the arising of future phenomena because of the power of incomplete conditions, which presumably would be a further stage on the path the cessation of hatred permanently, not because of the power of cultivating the path, but because the completion of the conditions giving rise to hatred have been come impossible. Presumably because one has uprooted the belief in the self, which would indicate the, the path of seeing. But the one before is, is uh, um, or in their system, it would indicate more than the path of seeing. Like in the Vibhashika system, they don't really have path of seeing. They have path of stream entry, one returner, non-returner, and arhat. And so this would indicate an arhat, actually. And the stages before that would be of uh, having up, uh, overcome the afflictions such as hatred through the virtue of the path would be somewhere between the, the continuum of uh, stream entry and arhatship. But uh, th these two, you know, it's it, it's like why? In what way are these phenomena? And um, if they're non-conditioned phenomena, do they? In what way do they function and have like a, a cause, act as a cause of a result or an effect? But they don't, because conditioned phenomena are not. Uh, said to have any cause or, uh, sorry, any effect or result, right? Because only things were classified in terms of entity or in terms of function, and the non-conditioned phenomena don't function. So to, to say, to give these uh, names as phenomena is just very odd in general. So I personally have never paid that much attention to them. I, I kind of think, you know how like uh, if you talk about quantum effects inside of a black hole, uh, you know, general relativity and quantum physics both break down. I feel like this is like that kind of case study, but for like causation, You're, like trying to yeah. talk about causation within the realm of, you know, uh, cessation. It, it's like the, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, which that's like, a good example. 
It's it's and and then that's kind of where the Mahayanists like it, it's almost feels like they're jumping off point. It's like okay, the thing doesn't this work. Is absurd. I, yeah, this, this is, is crazy. this thing isn't working. You know, in in the most pivotal case. So we need yeah. a new system. But the the funny thing is that a song repeats these, right? Um, so how does not a phenomenon? What do you call it then? What are these? A song repeats these and. Uh, so he says, so after he goes through suchness, I'm on page 161, the quote, so the second paragraph of the quote, what is space, that which is formless and accommodates all action, what is non-analytical cessation, that which is not free from what is to be negated, <laughs> what is analytical cessation, that which is free from what is to be negated, what is the immovable, it's the cessation of happiness and suffering that is free of attachment to the heaven called extensive virtue but not free from attachment to higher heavens yeah so these are all stages and in like uh, i i just never could understand how they could uh, classify stages of the path as phenomena as uh, even though non-conditioned phenomena in what way are they phenomena i i, I just don't get that you know i'm okay with space as a phenomena or you know not being included in suchness uh, i can sort of see as a phenomena i you know that has its own problems <laughs> how can it how can emptiness be a, an object but uh these these attainments how can they how are they how do they function but we also had a uh cessation in the other list we had meditative discernment and meditative non-attainment and cessation trance you know, in what way are they phenomena? Um, so I don't know. It, it's all very odd. And uh, but but the crux of your question, I think, was asking like, are these indicative of the stage of enlightenment? And uh, maybe the non-analytical cessation one is indicative of the stage of enlightenment. That that would be the closest, I think. It certainly in Vasubandhu's system. Let's see what Asanga says. Analytical is that which is free from what is to be negated, what is the immovable, sorry, non-analytical comes before that, that which is not free from what is to be negated, analytical cessation, that which is free from what is to be negated. I don't know what those mean. <laughs> um, what is the immovable cessation of happiness and suffering that is free, from, this is odd, a certain heaven realm. What is the cessation of discernment and feeling, the cessation of unstable and even stable minds and mental factors owing to attention and preceded by the discernment of the state of peace that's free from attainment sorry attachment to the base of nothingness and progresses beyond the summit of existence they're, they're trying to describe this uh, absorption state that goes that is said to uh, be achievable after one has cultivated the four formless absorptions so it comes after the the absorption of neither perception nor non-perception. Yeah, so I don't know. These are quandaries. Uh, let's see what the authors say of these eight types. The first three, although not different with, with respect to all being suchness, are differentiated by their basis. Of these eight types, the first three. So the first three were, um, I think, suchness, space, and the two types of cessation. The first three. Um, it was from the 
uh, if it was the Asanga list, the three yeah. were the suchness of auspicious things, the suchness of inauspicious things, and the suchness of neutral things. Thank you, yeah. Um, let's see. There are two things that are the object of cessation, the afflictions, and the feelings that are the source of the afflictions. It's on the basis of the cessation of the first that analytical cessation is defined. And within feelings, there are two kinds, pleasurable and painful, which affect change in the body and mind, and neutral feeling, which does not cause such change in body and mind. It's on the basis of the cessation of pleasure and pain that the immovable is defined on the basis of the exhaustion of neutral feeling, that cessation of discernment and feeling is positive. So these are all describing stages of the path. Um, the immovable is positive from the point of the cessation of feelings and pleasure and pain, which are objects to be negated on page 162, wherein one is free from attachment to the, oh geez, to the third absorption and below to the mundane path, but not free from attachment to the fourth absorption. It's so-called because it remains unmoved by the eight errors in particular, so-called because it's not moved by pleasure and pain. Uh, let's see. So these, these are all uh, certain attainments along the, the higher paths. Uh, let's see. The third paragraph on 162, the distinction between the meditative attainment of the cessation of discernment feeling referred to earlier as a non-associated formative factor versus the cessation of discernment and feeling just referred to which is in the non-conditioned phenomena group, is said to be this, the former is an implicative negation, whereas the latter is a type of non-implicative negation. Moreover, according to the views of the great masters of Buddhist epistemology, many of the factors that are defined from the perspective of conceptual thought, such as subject and predicate, common locus or loci and universals, definiens and definiendum, identity and difference, thesis and proof. All these universal categories must be posited as imputed existence and unconditioned phenomena. In unconditioned phenomena are imputed existence. He quotes from Dharmakirti, which I won't read, and then in conclusion, in view of the above, it must be understood that unconditioned phenomena need not be exhausted within the classification of the eight types enumerated earlier in the Sangha's compendium. Again, uh, it's not an exhaustive list, but the whole idea of unconditioned phenomena, um, the, the idea that there's more than one unconditioned phenomena is rather an odd idea to me. It seems like there should be this notion of, okay, there's unconditioned, non-created reality, and to, to include stages of development on the path in this just seems very odd, where the cessations that one experiences on the stage of the path. I, I don't really get that, how those can be considered to be a phenomena. But. Anyway, we're way over time. Sorry about that. Any final comments or questions? Next week, I cannot attend, so um, we'll enjoy skip. you enjoy your event. We'll skip next week. Yeah, you get to go into life. the get to go into the uh, Big Apple, Manhattan, for a change. For uh, this country boy, be. Uh, Where are they holding this thing? 
it's uh, I think it's in Lotse Library. Mm, nice. Down on Perry Street somewhere. I oh, that's think. nice. So we'll reconvene on uh, November 8th, I believe it is. So let's conclude with our dedication of merit. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. So I guess these unconditioned phenomena are the result of the effort to describe everything that one encounters. And since there is this report of uh, beings experiencing the stages of the path, such as arias and arhatship and things like that, and how that they achieve those stages, or what are the stages of the, those attainments, somehow had to be uh, included in the scheme. And uh, they chose to include them in the non-conditioned phenomena. Uh, I think from the point of view that they, um, their experiences that happen as, as they said, non-implicative negations, we usually think is like a, a, an act, activity of our mind. Our mind does that negation, uh, but they're talking about the result of the non-implicative negation. They, they are uh, phenomena that can, only be comprehended by virtue of a non-implicative negation as opposed they're not non-implicative negations non-implicative negations are verbal you know statements but they're the objects of non-implicative negation so they're they're states that one experiences by undoing the formative factors or conditioned factors that's the only way that i can come to grips with these things is that they're trying to describe states of attainment and how they attain them by abandonment basically you know there's this notion of attaining stages along the path by accumulating things by you know using the non-associated format formative factor of obtainment um, uh, but that keeps you in the cycle of samsara whereas to escape from samsara you have to undo and you have to unobtain and um, that process of unobtaining has to be out of the cycle of cause and effect. It has to be out of the cycle of conditioned reality. And so they figure that it needs to go in, in the unconditioned category. And yet there's gradations of, of these. So they have to give them all different names and descriptions and such. I don't know if, if that helps any, but that's the, the only way that I can... It, it still doesn't seem like it's un. I mean, if it, given that you have to go through some process to get there, it still doesn't seem very unconditioned in that sense. Yeah, their their ability to have different unconditioned phenomena is mind-boggling. Right. No, I feel like you, you, there needs to be some sort of third category where you have you have like a mixing, a partial mixing of conditioned and unconditioned. Phenomena. I'm with you. I'm that, with you. That Such gradually. Yeah, gradually moves into the one category of unconditioned phenomena. I agree. Let's do that in our new system. I was sort of thinking <laughs> that that last caveat where they said it shouldn't be, that this is not exhaustive. My thought was we should make sure that it's not more but less. <laughs> and it should also be not exhausting. 
Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Take care. See you guys soon. Be well. Have a great Halloween. Good night. Be careful out there. (laughs) Don't take any wooden apples or something. I don't know.